0: Welcome to the Cooge Street Podcast. This week we're coming live from the Saratoga Springs Hotel as part of the World Fantasy Convention. Today, Gary Wolf and I are, get, are joined by living legend Gene Wolfe, one of the finest people ever to write science fiction and fantasy, and our dear friend and legendary critic John Clute to discuss many hey. things including Gene's new book, A Borrowed Man. So welcome one and all. Thank you for joining us. Well, and welcome,
1: Gene. And although he may or may not speak, uh, Gene's son-in-law, Alan, is sitting in with us as well, just to correct all of us when we get off track. But uh, one of the reasons we, we, we started talking about this, Gene, is that by uh, serendipitous coincidence, John and I had written our reviews of a borrowed man... Uh, which you have not yet seen. Uh, well, I know. <laughs> yes. They're very positive reviews.
2: I'm, I might uh, not be here if I had seen those reviews. It depends. Do either of them look like they're carrying knives? <laughs>
0: uh, I've, I've read at least one of these reviews, and I think you're safe. Okay. Uh-huh. Of course, he's, he's shifty, so I wouldn't bet. But, yes. Sorry. Well, Clute is. Uh, we, we, we
1: should mention the famous quotation from John Clute, which, if I'm not mistaken, is on a borrowed man. Uh, that is that correct? I think it is. I've not seen the final copy. Hmm. We have a copy. We don't have a final copy, but it's something along the lines of a measured, reasonable, sane, even tempered assessment that Gene Wolfe may be the finest science fiction writer America has ever produced. Yes, I said that a long
3: time ago, and it, it was picked up by Tor, mm-hmm. and um, I, I, they've used it before, and I've never had any reason to back away from the statement. So, let them
1: steal it. That's from good.
2: Me. <laughs> if you, you back away, we'll kill you. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
1: I'm, I'm motivated. <laughs> <laughs> right. But we've both written uh, okay, the 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 thing that fascinates me about uh, about your career reaching. Oh, you must be almost sixty by now. Uh, <laughs> Don't I wish! <laughs> is that you've had a spurt of really interesting creativity in the la- within the last ten years, and a borrowed man is uh, John would agree with this. It. A rather yes, stunning novel. Well, thank you, thank yeah. you. Yeah, I think we
3: both we both think that we both think it is a is a book which um, it doesn't sum up every aspect of your career, but every aspect of your career sort of chimes in it, rings in it, echoes in it.
2: Wow. I'll never beat this. <laughs> <laughs> I'll make the, uh, the thing that has uh, sort of set me on fire, if I may use the expression, is that I keep telling myself either I must write now or I must
1: move along. lawn. Mowing mm-hmm. the lawn is I can write like
2: setting down.
1: Right. <laughs> That's a good point. Yeah. Do you have a sense that if you don't keep writing... Nobody will check you out, and you'll be burned after six months. (laughs) Exactly.
2: (laughs) Exactly. Precisely. Precisely so. That is a joke that is a... um, That's a (laughs) borrowed man joke. (laughs) A
3: a borrowed man (laughs) joke. And and perhaps, Gary, um, as you have a much more measured way of speaking than I do, you can give a very brief synopsis,
1: which I can contradict. I was going to ask you to do the same thing, but you got there. First. I got there. Well, Okay, I can explain the joke. The initial situation in A Borrowed Man, as the title immediately makes evident, is that there is a character named E.A. Smith, or do you pronounce it Smythe? I pronounce it Smith. It's well, Smith. Um, You make it clear in the book mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. yeah. yeah. it's Smith. S-M-Y-T-H-E. It's Earn. Yeah. Earn yeah. A. Yeah. Smith. Who is? I made a book? terrible
3: pun on Earn a Smith. Because it sounded like Rent a Maker, and it sounded like um, Buy a Writer. Buy a Smith. And, <laughs> I, and I said that. And I didn't even know whether you meant it. But I didn't care, because I was having fun.
2: The responsibility he... of middle-aged critics
3: <laughs> <laughs>
0: continues <Yes>. to, <laughs> to dazzle and <laughs> <laughs> and defeat the, the American public. So you were synopsizing the book, yes. Mr. Wolf.
3: Well, I was,
1: I was at least synopsizing the initial situation, which is that Urn A. Smith is a reclone uh, of a dead mystery writer who now, as a clone, himself occupies a shelf in a public library and can be checked out for consultation or can be consulted in the library. And there are other such human... Clones. There's a there's a there's a poet who he was once passionately involved with, or maybe he wasn't once passionately involved with, but his original was once passionately involved. He was
2: passionately involved with the original edition. Yes. 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 yes.
1: So 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 one of the beginning conceits before we get into the noir mystery and the various other genres that the book travels through within the first seven chapters, uh, one of the basic conceits is that authors or are like books, or in this case authors are books. Yes, we must, must not be too literal here
3: because those who have not read the book may think there is some kind of physical resemblance to a book and there is not. No. They look like human beings. The reclone uh, Ern A Smith looks is a young man with an old man's face, I think he says right at the beginning. Mm-hmm. And the shelf is more like a carol or a little a little chamber where he where he can actually Has a bunk, etc. So it's it's like
2: a furnished apartment. Yeah, Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah.
3: And he has all the memories of the original as well. Yeah. Well, he, in a sense, in a sense, he is not, but in a sense, he is the original. And that's one of the that's one of the plays that Gene I think makes in the novel.
1: But there there was one line, Gene, which I which just struck me in the novel and has haunted me haunted me ever since. And you tend to write lines that haunt me ever since. For which Good. I don't I don't know whether to be grateful for that or not.
0: <laughs> but there's
1: a line something like I remember making fifteen thousand decisions but never made a single one on my own. Is that about accurate?
0: I'm curious. <clears throat> this is the I think, fifth standalone book you've written in a row after writing a number of series. What was it that attracted you to writing the story of a borrowed man?
2: I thought you were going to say, uh, you were writing a standalone book. Uh, simply, uh, I wanted to see what happened if you made people as much like library books as possible. Uh, I don't mean that you're going to put them between cloth covers, mm-hmm. except at night, but, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, treat them as library books. They live on shows. They can be checked out. Uh, you get a card that says uh, due back on July 30th or whatever. It's July 30th in the mm-hmm. book, which is yeah. why I came out with it. And uh, see what happened from there. And so who are these people? And I decided that they were the clones of dead writers. Uh, if you want to... Uh, check out Charles Dickens; he's there, mm-hmm. and you can discuss Oliver Twist with Charles Dickens, or whatever, yeah. whatever you wish.
0: Can we, can we check out Gene Wolfe? I <laughs> have saved that for the sequel. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, there must be something about. I mean, it's a very intriguing idea: reducing people to objects and, and that are accessible, but still human—you know, like have personality, like people. You use the word "reduce." That's a, we'll come back to that. Okay, okay. Mm-hmm. because I mean it is the 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 first of at least two books. Because there's another book, interlibrary loan, that's going to come out at some point in the near future. I hope I haven't finished it yet. Okay.
1: Hmm. Mm-hmm. But did you have a two book sequence in mind when you began writing "A Borrowed Man"? No, no. I just decided that. It was such fun. I should do it again. <laughs> you know, uh, let's see what else are we can do with this concept. But it's not simply the idea of uh, the, 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 that conceit is simple to the book. But then, as the book opens up, there is a, a bit of a, a bit of a Raymond Chandler mystery sure. in it. Uh, there's a bit of a mysterious dystopian future in it that involves hover cars, okay. and the population of the world is down to a billion now, and we're not exactly told why. Uh-huh. And all these things seem to want to open up in different directions. Uh-huh. I think, um, um,
3: to interrupt, unless you'd you love to say something. Go ahead. No, no, you know, no, no, no. That, it, that the dystopian future is not just one of the genres. It is the genre that shapes everything else because it's necessary to have this kind of world for the initial conceit, the initial premise to actually fit into a story. It has to be a dystopian world. You know, a world that has any, as it were, humane impulses towards its artifacts would not put a consciousness into a clone body, edit it down, force it to talk in a particular way, and burn it if it wasn't used.
1: <laughs> yeah. 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 Well said. Yeah. Would you, would you, would you, would you agree that this is more or less what John just said? A rather mean-spirited world? Oh, of course. Yes. Hurt pay all. Mm-hmm. That's what I meant when I said that mm. this this bo- book had
3: kind of held a lot of your previous work in sort of chrysalis in a very brief, um, crystalline form. Because it is, because this, the
2: savagery of this world is never really mentioned directly, um, but it's very the, obvious. What's, what's the point? I mean, what am I going to do? Have a character say, gee, this is a savage world. <laughs>
0: <laughs>
2: Come on. Well, so we don't think like that.
3: We don't think uh, like that. But you made sure that your character spoke through filters and through censoring controls because he was not allowed. He had to talk in a particular way, and he was mm-hmm. not allowed. Of course, you, you make an enjoyable play with that. He's not allowed to write. Oh, but, of course, yeah. we're reading
2: something he has written. Uh, well, yes. <laughs> but, but he's sneaking off to do it. You see, he's breaking mm-hmm. the rules
3: to do it. I, I, I speculated mm-hmm. at the at the end of my review, that um, possibly the stash of money he had might have helped a bit in his enabling himself to, that, that to do something. well could be, yeah. because yeah. These,
2: uh, these clones who are library references are supposed to be broke. Uh, they're allowed only very petty personal possessions, mm-hmm. such as a watch, for mm-hmm. example. Uh, they get clean clothes every day. They turn in their dirty clothes at night, and... Uh, the clothes don't really belong to them, you know. It's what
1: you get. And they can be loaned out to other libraries, which sure. is what the title of in, your secret in library loan, yeah. Mm-hmm. Sure. But on the one hand, there is this rather grim world that could do this to people. And on the other hand, there's the American Midwest. There are bus stations, there are small towns, there are um, uh, some of the well, one of the things that struck me is that much of the novel is so familiar, and much of it is so alien, and it's within the same space. Yeah. One of the cruelest
3: strokes is having that familiarity, which. Jangles with the bits that are not familiar very deliberately, yeah. and you begin to work out that yeah. this is not only a dystopia, but yeah. it is a dystopia yeah. which is created kind of yeah. Truman Show yeah. environment that that bricolage things from here, things from there are inserted yeah. almost at random yeah, into this, this dysfunctional yeah. world. It's 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 yeah, it's it, very it,
2: savage. This is this is the way you want to do it. Uh, <coughs> Alice stumbles upon what. A tea party. Mm-hmm. Okay. It's a fantastic tea party. The Hatter is mad. The March Hare is mad, too. Mm-hmm. The Dormouse is hiding in the teapot. And so on and so forth. You know. Uh, that's the way you do it. If you create a fantasy world in which everything is fantasy, uh, there are no trees... There are animals that may not be animals at all. They're part Mm -hmm. ghost and part plant. Uh, you know, uh, everything gets lost in the fog here. Mm. Uh, you have to have sort of a familiar reference, you know. A good picture has to have a frame. Mm -hmm. You can't just, it can't just fade off into the distance.
0: On the other hand, is it important to leave Space in that good picture for the reader to interact with the, with the story, okay. for it to be not locked down in every detail, but oh, no. o- open to, open to be more.
2: A- absolutely. Uh, and what is the point of giving a detail if it has no bearing on what's going on in the story? You know, mm-hmm. I don't want to sit there and lecture you about this world. Uh, it would bore you to death and you would skip it and you would be right. You know, read the story. The, Mm. uh, points that are given are the points that bear on what's happening to the characters.
0: How do you know which detail, though, to leave out? Where do you get the feeling that this is the the stuff to imply? The ones that don't influence, uh,
2: the characters, uh, to their knowledge.
0: Well, I mean, oh, gas. Yes. Well, so, <laughs> this is one of those... I common- knew the
2: Clute was too smart. <laughs> um,
3: oh, there was something that, that you said that I was going to interrupt, and I decided not to interrupt. Now I've forgotten it. You see, the, the, the <clears throat> courtesy is is, is is a double-edged sword. I said about reducing. Um, yeah, you did say re- about re- reducing, and that wasn't what I was thinking about. Keep okay. talking. <laughs> Keep talking. Um, I'll, I'll come back to it and
0: interrupt you. When I talk about leaving things open to interpretation, there's a lot of effort put into interpreting your work. Do you find that burdensome? That's what I wanted
3: to interrupt you about.
0: (laughs) Do do you find it burdensome? No. Why should I? Well, because because, you you sit down, you write a story, plainly in your own mind you've got a clear idea of what it is, and you hope that the reader will get at least the core of that, and that they will, as they collaborate with it with their own imagination, build it out. It seems to me there's something a little, you know, there's now an element with with when your work is read that people are trying to assume perhaps there's more in some places than you intended, or something different than you intended. It may very well be. I I have,
2: uh, one. I had one man who frequently wrote me letters, and he was interpreting work of mine in ways that I never remotely intended. Mm-hmm. Yes. And, uh, you know, uh, somebody called him a, a hook in the head critic. Was that you? <laughs>
3: no, I didn't. Oh, okay. I would have said a, I I ma- I would have said a maggot in the head. In my head. <laughs> I, I, I'm stealing yeah, no, I that, that
2: hook in the head thing from someone. I don't remember who it was. I but, uh, yeah, that's the way he was. Yeah. You know, he, uh, He was kind of a low-grade madman, and he was reading all this stuff into it. Did he publish a couple of books? Is
3: is he the chap who published a couple of books? Yeah.
2: Yeah. Can we name him? Criticism. I wish you would, because I I forgot I think it's Robert Borsky. Robert Borsky. You got
0: him. I've read as well one or two interviews with you and various critics, and there's an element of someone coming up to you and saying, so... I read the Book of the New Sun 453 times, and I'm fairly sure that when you said this, you meant that. Am I right? And that's kind of got to be a... a, I I have to say,
2: I have no idea. You realize I wrote that years ago. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Uh, I've had people call me up and mm -hmm. ask about stories I wrote 15, 20 years ago. I, I... Haven't reread that for two years now. (laughs) (laughs) Whatever, when I I was other stuff of mine that I've never reread.
3: Yeah, I was Um, going to um, um, comment on something you said about just reading the story. And certainly, if I had a critical intuition about reading you, which was which began my reading you properly as far as I was able to, it's from forty years ago. It's that, and when I put into reviews, too, it's that you had to pay attention to what Gene Wolfe said. You had to read the story. Yeah. You couldn't just sort of take a... Mm. You couldn't just talk, sort of think, yeah, that's about, that's, about a, that's about a forest, that's about a guy, that's about a clone. You had to read the words. Mm-hmm. And that was, in the science fiction of 1975 or so, that
2: was revolutionary, I think. Yeah.
3: And I think it still is. It was cer-
2: certainly relatively rare. Um uh,
3: it, it's it's hard to think of any other writer in the field yeah. to whom one had to say, "I am going to pay attention to every single word."
2: Yeah, and when answer. I
3: do that, I may get to the mm-hmm. get to the answer, but I may mm-hmm. not.
2: Yeah. Well, yeah, one one is making a drawing, and the other one is rearranging rubber stamps. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know. Yeah. And, well, I don't see much point in rearranging rubber stamps. I want to make a drawing.
0: So what is the point of a borrowed man? God knows. <laughs> what did you find it to be? <laughs> I, I'm, I'm with these fellows. Oh. I'm one of the happy, happy people who have a coffee set aside to so actually read and enjoy. I think Gary and I have a very similar sense of,
1: of what it's about in us. or what, what it might be thematically about. Well, one, one of the things, that when I said it, it traveled through different uh, genres, I guess that's not quite the right uh, way of looking at it. It layers different genres on top of one another. And one of yeah. the things that John and I have talked about is his review I, is more it contains something closer to a spoiler than mine. But I don't think you can spoil a Gene Wolfe novel because I think a Gene Wolfe novel always is read
3: for the second time. The second time is a first reading, mm-hmm. and so I'm I'm not worried about spoiling a Gene Wolfe novel. Well, that's I'm not worried true. about spoiling anyway, but Gene Wolfe in particular. I was
1: actually you, quoting yeah. you to Quinn yeah. with this morning that you should never. You, but, but it's it's kind yeah. of a problem, but, but it's real. You should never read a Gene Wolfe novel for the first time. You should always read it for the second <laughs>
2: time. My publisher would shoot him. <laughs>
1: and I wouldn't tell the police. <laughs> no, it would mean we have to buy two <laughs> copies. Yeah. One to not read yeah. and the second one to read. Yeah, yeah.
0: One, the first one to mark up. That's a good strategy. Yeah, no, yeah. Yeah. I'm not sure you can buy one book to read and one to have read. Um. That's it. Well, that's uh, the that's solution. In a sense, oh. obviously. But there is, it, in there is. Sense it doesn't make sense.
3: Oh. But in a sense, it does make sense. But one of the things
1: which is interesting about all of, of, of Gene's work, work, including the stuff that looks like fantasy, is that there is a sense in all of it that I get that you grew up in science fiction. Mm-hmm. And that you like science fiction. This one resolves itself in a, well, it doesn't quite resolve itself, but it certainly opens up in a science fictional way. Mm-hmm. And that's uh, the difference that John and I, because I didn't really, I didn't really say what was behind that door. Although I think one of the things we also agree is is that There Are Doors is the title of yours, which most clearly describes all of your fiction. The first three words of my review are There Are Doors. Right, exactly. And one of those doors leads clearly into a science fictional world. Yes. Which I guess we can say at least, without being too spoilerish, has a somewhat different gravity. Gary is so nice to
3: people who are worried about spoilers. I'm going to. Mis- I'm, going okay. to I'm, going, I'm going to. I'm going to. I'll take it on my head to go a
2: bit further. Okay.
3: okay. Yeah. I'll um, hit
2: him with my stick if necessary. Yeah. That I'll, I'll just <laughs> hit,
3: don't hit that. Do not. Yes. <laughs> hit, hit that if I say it too much. Well. It looks innocent to me. Yeah. Um, there are certain patterns in Gene Wolfe novels which do repeat themselves, and one of the significant patterns is the garden on the roof of the house. Mm. Really? Yes, indeed, I think. Well, maybe um, um, Dennis Weir, whatever his name is in peace, is not exactly a garden on top of his house, but it's certainly a tree on top of his tomb and um, yeah, and yeah, and there are garden I think there's a yeah. garden on top of the house in the fifth head of Cerberus, and I think there's a garden there are several gardens on top of several houses or citadels in mm-hmm. the book of the new sun, and probably the other exa- other examples as well, but this novel has indeed a garden mm-hmm. that is as I said coterminous with the top of the house, although' it's not actually the roof it's it's way up there, and you go into that through um by using. Um, the protagonist's book that was the sort of, mm-hmm. um, MacGuffin, um, as an actual key, a literal key, like a hospital, mm-hmm. a hotel room key to get into this room. And it is a door into another green world, into, into another, another universe. And there's, this happens soon enough in the novel that it's not really a spoiler to say that. And I don't care if it is because it makes the novel so much more interesting to find out
1: Eventually, what happens to that world? Mm-hmm. Did, you, did that feel like a spoiler to you? No. So you don't worry about spoilers? If, it, if, it, if I thought
2: it was a spoiler, I would have yeah, read those <laughs> pages away and rewritten them. <laughs> I'd, you
1: know, be I'd be spoiled.
3: spoiled. <laughs> yeah.
2: Mm-hmm. Uh, no, I I liked that. I, you know, I felt that something big should be going on, mm-hmm. and this was my something big. And It's enormous.
3: It's part of, the, it's the main reason for me why rereading the novel when I do it, I've read, reread Pitts, is, is going to be such an experience of, of a definitive terminal novel. Because to do the spoiler, that other world has, as it were, access to our science fiction dreams of infinite power, infinite travel, infinite romance, hmm. and the protagonist I think, not necessarily in revenge, but as a fair assessment of the desperate state of the world that he has been manufacturing, locks the door and loses the key. And that means Homo sapiens is doomed.
2: Serves us right. (laughs)
3: That—that That is absolutely what the book makes definitive. Without saying, without
1: breaking its, as it were, demure smile. There's a, there's, a, there's a geniality about the book, which is extremely deceptive. And it's not the first time you've done that. Either. No. Uh, here's a kindly narrator who's going to destroy your entire
0: world by the time you've finished with this book. I've seen that happen more than once. Uh, yeah, but when I hear you talk about the book, you talk about a story set in a dystopian world that keeps some kind of decency and moral heart and appreciation for people. No. No, you don't think so?
3: I right. do not think this novel depicts that kind of world. I don't think Harry well, does. I don't think Gene it's, it's meant that. It's a world it was of unbearable well, cruelty.
1: Cruel cruelty. Oh, no, no,
3: Sorry, no, no, I'm, I'm interrupting. You. Okay.
0: Okay.
1: This Gene, Gene, explain all this to us because we're getting confused sick. No, I'm, I'm yeah. very interested to hear your opinion. Well, well, well my sense well. is that the, the humane aspect of the novel is, a, is, is the reaction that we, the reader, have to this inhumane world. The world itself has very little to redeem it. Uh, but by looking at that lack of redemption, we, the author, we the reader, are implicit in creating our own redemption and reading the
0: book. Because, I mean, were you trying to write a story about an irredeemable world? I'm sorry? Were you trying to write a story about an irredeemable no. world? No, no, no. But,
3: um, in the end, I think... It may not be an irredeemable world, but the narrator, the protagonist, deems it so by his action. Okay. It may, he may have been wrong, but it illuminates backwards mm-hmm. a sense of the extraordinary cruelty of this world. Um, if you happen to have a birth defect, you will be eliminated. It's a eugenicist yeah. world. Mm-hmm. It is a world that could only have reduced its population by 80 or 90 percent by the most inconceivable cruel means. You don't say a word about that, but you do mention it's only a billion people. And that's the sort of thing exactly that you do. You tell the story and we have to read a billion people. Well, how does this happen? Gene Wolfe does not have to tell us how it happened. but But we cannot think that it happened because Walt Disney had a particular kind of ticket that only certain people get in and
1: the other people just led their natural lives in Patagonia. But Jean can introduce us to a character who is mute and who's, essentially whose life is in danger because of that disability. Yes. Who is mute? The woman. The, the woman and the bus, the, the couple on the bus. Uh, that, uh, that Yes, yeah, I know that, but, uh,
2: what did you say about her?
1: Mute. Mute? No, no. That essentially she's in danger by having this disability. Oh yeah, she could certainly. be absolutely uh, filed away. She could certainly, yeah, and that she's supposed to be institutionalized. Exactly. Uh huh. Yes. Which I think is a hint to the nature of this mm-hmm. world as well. Her lover is trying to keep her away,
2: keep her from being institutionalized, okay. protect uh-huh. her. And institutionalizing is, is, is a terminal thing here. Okay. Well, you go, you go <laughs> so in and you stay until you die, you know. Yeah. Uh, they take uh, people with incurable deformities and so forth, and they lock them up so that others don't have to look at them. And uh, if they have an incurable deformity, they're mm. going to stay until they die. If it's a curable deformity, maybe they
1: fiction fix it. Let it go. Maybe they won't, you know. Well, one of the things uh, to just broaden the discussion a little bit since the, I, I think at the beginning of, of Borrowed Man, there is this almost surrealistic conceit about people being checked out as books. And then by the end, there is a good deal of almost, well, I'm not going to say old fashioned science fiction because I don't think you've ever written old fashioned science fiction. But there's a sense of the book, okay, this is a book by a science fiction writer. And every time you and I have talked about this, you still, i always identified yourself as a science fiction writer. Mm-hmm. You've famously given credit to Damon Knight yep. uh, for ha- having grown you from a pea. A bean. Beans. A bean, okay. Um, I'm, 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 I'm <laughs> glad let's you know it was a pea. I get the details right. Do you
2: still feel that way? Oh, yes. Absolutely. Oh. Absolutely.
1: So, the people who were your formative influences were Damon. Was Terry Carr one of them? I don't believe so. Mm -hmm. What about early editors like Seal Goldsmith who were buying your stories back in the 60s? Did Seal Goldsmith ever buy anything? I think she did. It seems to me there was at least one in either Amazing or Fantastic, but I'd have to look it up. Okay, maybe. I I don't remember. Somebody will check this out and correct me on it. But Damon
2: had an enormous influence, no mm-hmm. argument. And Damon and Kate were doing uh, the Milford Writers Conference, mm-hmm. uh, which, in its glory days, were well worth was well worth attending. Mm-hmm. And it eventually fell prey to what I found one of the strangest. Uh, quirks that I ever have had. Uh, Damon and Kate would rather have talked to a professor of English at Harvard than to Ernest Hemingway. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? There was this, uh, looking up to scholars as opposed to creative artist. that the art mm. critic was much more important than the artist. And I happen to believe that the artist is much more important than the art critic. And being around people who feel the reverse kind of gives you this Alice in Wonderland, mirror maze feeling, you know?
1: Mm. But did they feel that way because they were... In a world in which any kind of attention or respect for science fiction was
2: bought at great price, well, I don't know that you could buy it at great price. Uh, you just generally didn't get it at all. No well, matter yeah, what you were willing to pay for it. Um, I have never yeah. never felt that uh, science fiction benefited from. Uh, Mm. The critic criticism of university professors.
1: Academic. Okay, yeah. yeah. It was
2: it was it was a kind of it, it's it's a it's a sad
3: story you tell about Dan Knight, and um, whom I never knew myself, and, and Kate Wilhelm, because it makes them into supplicants, into clients of of a system which is not going to reward their their their, their bringing their little tribute to mm-hmm. them. It's it's not. They're, they're not going to be rewarded by that. Yeah, I knew that. You know that, but they didn't know that. <laughs> it may be a generational thing. Maybe at yeah. that, maybe at that point, it was still possible to think in the golden age of American history and of science fiction that that it might be possible that if we if we if we bring our gifts in our hands like this, open hands, maybe they will understand and maybe they will pass us on our backs. Yes, yes. So it, I, it didn't happen. It's, you it know, wasn't, it wasn't they wild. want
2: to get the, the something or other prize for literature and all that sort of thing. And, uh, A, I think it's unrealistic, and, B, I don't think it's worth striving
3: for. Just um, to the to the side of that a bit, do you think that Damon Knight's late work was influenced by you? No. You don't at all? No, I don't.
2: Maybe it was, but I, I never caught the idea that it was
3: I'm, I, I need to go back to a couple of those late ones, which I was having difficulty reading as straightforward Damon Knight novels. And that was just a thought. It was
2: probably a bad one, but,
3: but this is not a supplement thought. remember
2: Damon was running the, uh, Milford Writers Conference, and so there were a whole lot of people in there who could influence it. you. Know, uh, yes. You, you were not invited to the Milford Writers Conference unless you were a published writer. Uh, this was not open to wannabes.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: You had to be able to show publishing credits. Uh, if I remember correctly, it was uh, three published stories or one published book. And if you didn't have one or the other, uh, forget it. You weren't going to get to go to Milford. This is probably because I've constantly tried to find...
3: um Writers, as it were, intelligent enough to be properly influenced by you. <laughs> I don't mean just the um. su- superficies of the, of the stories, but the actual, the actual hard, arduous autonomy that the story is what it is, and it is nothing else. And if you don't get it, I, I you are not. I can't resist yeah. Now,
2: see if you can find some who are intelligent enough not to be influenced. By <laughs>
3: well, there, there are quite a few intelligent writers who I think sadly show vest, only vestigial in influence if it, with regard to mm-hmm. what I really think of this as, as ultimately the important thing. How do you make a work of art out of science fiction a piece of writing which nobody can ever change? It is that. It is. It is what it is. It, it it finishes. It is the story, and all one can do. Most of us is try to understand it and try to convey to others what we understand. Mm-hmm. I'm still looking for writers who got further, and I was hoping that Damon and what was that an on, an on,
1: on, on oval, and his other last. Novel. Oh, what was the title oval. of why. Yeah. So oh, the, the, and the subtitle was An Oval, but the title of it was
0: yeah. Why Did? Was it Why Did?
1: No, was that, that was one of the others. That was uh, one of the yeah. others.
3: Yeah. Yes. I think they were unsuccessful books. Mm. But I
0: that think was you're probably, right. Yeah. Yeah.
3: But it was, I think he was trying to do something. And I, and I, and I've not, I don't have the wisdom to capture what it was he was trying to do. <laughs> My guess was that he was trying to do you, but maybe there's no chance of that at all. Yeah,
1: maybe, maybe, I don't know. Uh... As I say, Humpty Dumpty? Humpty Dumpty. Humpty Dumpty. Humpty Dumpty and over. Yeah. And, yeah. uh, and then there are writers who openly acknowledge and cheerfully acknowledge the influence is a, is a difficult thing. I mean, Neil Gaiman is the one who comes to mind more than anybody else, who has written tributes, written versions of your stories, rethinkings of your stories, uh, partly in his own words to see if he can get it right or if he can get close to what you were doing. <laughs>
2: Neil is a good friend of mine and one of the best guys in the world. I, mm-hmm. I treasure him. Uh, I don't mean that I own him. <laughs> but I, I mean, he's a really, really bright spot in my life that uh, Neil is a friend of mine. Mm-hmm. A good friend.
3: And Neil has the capacity of doing that. He, I, I feel mm-hmm. that way myself about Neil. And it, and I, I say know. that
2: though I was once chased by a skyrocket, which was ultimately his, uh, I wasn't really chased. I would have run if I had been fast enough. <laughs> the rocket went much faster than I did.
1: Uh, we, uh. We have to hear the story. <laughs>
2: oh, oh yeah, okay, okay. We had a Guy Fawkes party.
1: Uh. In Wisconsin. At
2: yes. His house. Yes. Uh, he said that the, uh, If they, he did not celebrate Guy Fawkes each year, the British consulate would revoke his passport <laughs> and, uh, you know, all this. And so we had a Guy Fawkes party with a bonfire and a guy whose pockets were full of fireworks. And, of course, he was burnt for being a Catholic, and I'm a Catholic. And so I was there cheering for the guy. You know, <laughs> I'd give it to him, guy. Blow up the fucking houses of Parliament. Blow them up. <laughs> and and uh, at one point, a skyrocket came out of one of guy's pockets. It went for me. <laughs> Missed me by that much.
3: <laughs> I could say just very, very briefly. For many years after a, a book of yours has been published, Neil and I talk about the book, what it means, how it works. Mm-hmm. He's he's been following you very, very, very closely for many, many years and and he's he's the best reader I know
0: mm-hmm.
3: of of your of your books. I I find I find him a good reality test when mm-hmm. I go overboard and in um, trying to understand or trying to make a leap that
1: shouldn't be made. He's, he's, a, he's a, an astonishingly good reader of your work. Good him. I think part of that is the sentences as well. and One of the things I know when people, uh, <coughs> I'm, I'm not going to mention, there, there, I think there have been two kinds of, at least two different kinds of influences. And Neil, I think, is somebody who wants to know how you do what you do at the level of the sentence and at the level of the paragraph. And there are other younger writers who will look at um, the, the, the Book of the New Sun or the Book of the Long Sun, or they will look at Wizard Night, and they, they look at what appear to be the structures there, but they don't look at the sentences. And so much is, or so much is packed into the sentences that you cannot translate the Wizard Night into a traditional high fantasy romance, if that makes sense. I think that makes good sense, yes. And so when you're when you're playing with or using familiar materials, and the wizard knight was you were using the most familiar materials of all, and you ended up with a novel that didn't look like anything like any other novel that had wizards and knights in it. So are you playing deliberately? When, because you you do a lot of genres. I, I, don't don't, I don't want to tell
2: stories that have already been told.
1: Mm-hmm. What's the point?
2: You know if, if this was written. Well, in 1905, why in the world should I be repeating it in 2015? Mm-hmm. Uh, it's been done. It's on the library shelves. I want to do something different, something new. Uh, and if you think that you can no longer do news stories about knights, you're wrong. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can do a bunch of news stories about knights. You could probably spend a lifetime doing new
0: stories about knights and never exhaust them all. After 40, <clears throat> pardon me, after 45 years of writing science fiction novels, do you find it harder to find new stories to tell? No, 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 no. Well, I, I'm not looking particularly for new
2: stories. I'm looking for good stories. That's what mm. I want. And where do you find them? In here. In mm. my imagination. How do I, what happens now? uh not what does it appear is going to happen next but what can I make really
0: happen next that will rock the boat you know mm-hmm. uh, and <clears throat> pardon me, and does science fiction still do you feel it still offers you the same possibilities it did when you started writing writing all those years ago oh yeah
2: yes. I, I don't think the thing is inexha- I think the thing is inexhaustible uh I don't see how how it can
0: be exhaustive. And do you still feel it's a worthy endeavor? I mean, science fiction comes from the, in many ways, the pulpiest of pulp roots and is often derided as being mere entertainment, yet it is so much more. Do you you feel it's still a a worthy endeavor? Yes, I think Well, will always be a worthy endeavor.
2: Uh, If we... we, Mm -hmm look at it from the, the bare-bones perspective, uh, it's what's going to happen as a result of science, what can happen as a result of science, mm. uh, what should happen as a result of science, how can things go wrong? Uh, and by science, I mean all kinds of sciences, social sciences mm. as well as uh, physics and chemistry, you
3: know. Um, one of the things you were saying just reminds one, um, one gets kind of complacent and expects it of you, but it is a remarkable thing to think about A Borrowed Man as a book that we've never read before. It's a story that I've mm-hmm. never encountered. Yeah. And, it, and that that in itself, um, I get so used to expecting
1: it that I didn't even say anything in the review about You've never read anything like this before, people. Mm-hmm. Other than that, that's, that's almost generally true, even when you think you might have, because when there's a mystery plot, an earlier interesting meta-mystery that you wrote, which I always liked, and nobody talks about is Pandora by Holly Hollander. And I have a real fondness for that story, partly yeah, because... I can't find a Holly Hollander. Well, yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> but... Um, but one of the things I'm going gonna, I'm, I'm gonna to inadvertently drag your son-in-law to this, because Alan was saying this to me earlier today, which makes a lot of sense when you approach it. And do you mind my quoting? What well, you were saying is that, that you know, you approach fiction with the mind of an engineer. Well, that might be. Yeah. So I, that, you but, know, I am,
2: a, well, I'm not an engineer, mm-hmm. because I'm no longer practicing engineering, but my... Uh, that's what I studied in college. I have a degree as a
1: mechanical engineer. Mm-hmm. But I mean, one way of, it, well, one way of sort of, uh, expanding on that is that when you, when you produce some engineering device, everything has to work together flawlessly. Every piece, no matter where the piece might come from, no matter what the piece might look like in terms of its separate mm-hmm. application, mm-hmm. has to function, uh, as, as part of a whole. Uh, and, that is as true of a novel as it is, dare I say it, of a machine that makes Pringles. You dared. I dared, yeah. For those of, okay, you didn't. Okay, let, uh, just this is this is folklore which is out there, so we can clarify. It, but as you explained it to me, you didn't design that machine, but you engineered it. Is that yeah, correct? that's that's, that's okay. a very good way to put it. Alright, so, so we wouldn't, we might have Pringles if it weren't for Gene Wolf. Yeah,
2: the the Pringle was invented by a German whose Mm -hmm. name I have forgotten, not because I have anything against him, but because Mm -hmm. I knew him, never knew him that well. Uh, and what I did was work on the machinery that Uh would mass produce these things. Uh, the way that he did it was, make ten of them to show somebody, you know. And I needed a way in which we were making, at the very least, hundreds
1: and hundreds of them per minute. Mm. And, but the the point, to get back to what I I think Alan was saying, and if I'm wrong, you can correct me, was that, uh, if you look at fiction from that point of view, well, you're certainly not mass-producing things, but you have to make a machine which is flawless.
2: Well... You try to make a machine, that at least runs well. Well, okay. Uh, you remind me, and I don't know if this is apropos or not, of a man I knew who made the canner for Pringles. And he was given the assignment of you know, the canner has to be uh, no bigger than this. It needs to cost no more than this. It needs to be able to uh, take uh, 200 cans a
1: minute.
2: He's working on it. They say, no, no, we're going to revise it. Make it to take 350 cans a minute. Mm-hmm. Okay, and six weeks later they say, We're going to revise these specs, make it handle 600 cans per minute. Mm -hmm. And he almost went crazy Mm
1: -hmm.
2: because he would have a machine that was going to be able to meet the specs. And now they have changed the specs on him, and the machine that he had in mind and was starting to build and so forth was
1: not going to work. Mm -hmm. That's unnerving. Yeah. The the, the <laughs>
2: problem here is that when you're the boss and you tell somebody to do it, don't keep changing it in middle <laughs> of the dream. You know the the uh, there's a classic cartoon about uh, somebody's walking past a uh, draftsman who is drawing a, something on a, a drafting board. You know the drafting mm-hmm. machine and so on. And he says, uh, uh, let me know when you're a little farther along. I want to make some changes.
0: (laughs) I'm curious. Uh, Earlier, Gary and John were talking to you about the impact that Damon Knight had on your writing. Mm -hmm. It seems to me, though, that actually the longest editorial relationship you've had in your career is with David Hartwell. Mm -hmm. How has he impacted on your work? Uh,
2: he really hasn't impacted it much at all. Uh, David and I have rarely had any kind of a disagreement. Uh, he may suggest minor changes, and generally mm-hmm. I make them. Yeah. But, uh, it's never big stuff. If it were big stuff, I would refuse to make it. Yeah. Uh, okay. But, you know, if, if he says, uh, Let's split this chapter here and turn it into two chapters. And can you expand each each half? Uh, I'll say sure, and I do. It. Okay. Uh,
3: David, years and years ago, told a story which you may have heard about um, his first encounter with editing you. Uh, he was given the um, management. I think you had written the entire book of the New Sun before you submitted to. to, to hmm. And so he he, he received the manuscript the New Sun, a couple of thousand type pages, I presume, of substantial manuscript. Lots of pages. Lots, Lots of, of pages. pages. And he read it, and at the end of it he said there's something wrong here. This is him telling the story on himself. Mm-hmm. There's there's something wrong here. This I just can't work it out. And finally I realized I couldn't touch a single word of this book. <laughs>
1: <laughs> he couldn't edit; yeah. he was done. Well, I mean, that's one. That, uh, I've heard David describe that in, in slightly different terms. Um, but David is a, is a is a legendary editor, and has yes. has, has made some um, not great novels into great novels. Uh, and one of the things that he's proud about when he talks about Gene Wolfe is knowing enough to leave it alone, and. To some extent, that's true. To some extent, that's a skill that, that it takes a long time for an editor to learn. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he's, uh, uh, of course, he loves editing you for that reason because, uh, he knows he's gonna get a pretty complete manuscript. Which raises the question, how much do you edit yourself? I mean, how oh, long? as does it take? much as I can, you know. Do you go through multiple drafts? If
2: necessary. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, if, if I have to, I think the most I've ever drafted anything was eight. Really? Uh, but that was one thing and the only time I have redrafted it that
0: many.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Three is much more typical. Yeah. Mm-hmm. What, what actually is the life cycle of a novel for, for you, sort of from the idea through to delivering it to, to the publisher? Uh, how long? Yeah, do you how long does take? The yeah. timeline? Yeah,
2: yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, of course that depends a lot on my personal life. Yeah. And mm-hmm. it depends on whether I decide to stop after one draft and write some short stories, which is, is something that I do, because if you keep working on the same thing, you don't see the things that you would see if you were picking it up cold. Yeah. And so mm-hmm. set it down and let it cool off and uh, do something else. Yeah. Uh Write some short stories, paint the house, or whatever. How, Cut how, the grass. How, how, how long does a draft take? take Rosemary
0: or, on a vacation. Mm-hmm. A fine thing to do. How how long roughly does a, does a draft take? Like for like, like a burrowed man. How how long roughly? What well, depends on what the interruptions are and so forth. Very very roughly a year.
1: Yeah. Hmm. And this is but 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 I've never. Known you to be short of ideas. There seems to always be something. But you mentioned that A Borrowed Man was not necessarily intended to be a diptych, but, or, is that the word? Yeah. Uh, Or trilogy. Uh, And yet, now here you are with the book barely out Mm -hmm. and you're deep into interlibrary alone. Yeah. Uh, Is that just because you realized you weren't done with this world? Yeah, yeah. And there might be another story in it after this one, if you discover something going on. So you're discovering things in your stories as you write them. Sure. I don't have the entire story in mind when I start the
2: page one, you know. Mm. I'd go crazy. Uh, I have an idea of where it might be going and what the situation is, uh, which is, in A Borrowed Man, what if human beings were treated like library books? Mm-hmm. And why would this situation exist? And what it, what would it be like to be a human being who is treated like a library book? Mm-hmm. And as somebody mentioned, if, he, if he's not checked out often enough, they burn him. Yeah. Which is what happens with library books. And what kind of a world would that happen in? Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. There, obviously, it has to have. Uh, a world in which it would happen, and people who would do it. Yeah.
1: And what I've heard already earlier this weekend was that there's already some media interest in this, some TV or movie interest in a borrowed man. Absolute news to me. I haven't heard it uh, I Heard, that from heard your word ag- about i it. heard that from your agent, so it's... <laughs> well,
2: that, that may be. Uh, you know, would, my agent is very likely to uh, get that stuff before I well, hear yeah. about
1: it. Uh, but you've you, you never really had... Uh, much experience with Hollywood or, or adaptations no, and that sort of thing? No, yeah, so. no never done it. Mm.
2: Never done it. I've sold, uh, you know, uh, oh, what do you call it? Options. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh, yeah. On uh, some work. But uh, that was just, uh, I signed a piece of paper and put the money in my pocket and walked away. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, if they can get somebody who really wants to do it and get backing and make a movie or make TV. Mm-hmm. Uh, fine, they'll tell me, and I'll get on it if they want me along to help. But uh, that's never happened. People just buy the options and pay me so much for a six-month option. Mm-hmm. And uh, I stick it in my pocket, and
1: that's the, the end of it.
2: But have There's, you wanted
1: to write in different forms? Have you wanted to write plays or operas or... Films, or? I
2: have occasionally toyed with the idea of writing plays, and in fact I have written some fiction with plays or one-act plays oh. or something in them. Book of the U.S. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But uh, films, uh, that's a whole field in itself, and I know very little mm-hmm. about it. You know... Uh, Making a film is really something else, and it ends up with a shooting script that's probably been worked on by eight or ten writers,
0: mm-hmm.
2: and then you get the le- leading lady who complains that she doesn't have enough lines in the big scene, and right. so on and so forth.
0: Well, <clears throat> I guess we're coming towards the end of our hour. Given the nature of the conversation, I'm curious to sort of go around and ask you in turn, since you've reviewed the book and you wrote <coughs> it. Given we're talking about a borrowed man, what would you say to a reader who's going to pick it up first?
1: That's a good question. I'm going to I'm going to think about that while John answers.
0: That's a way too <laughs> smug response, Gary. <laughs> no,
1: I'm going right. to answer it. I'm just <laughs> thinking about it. I've, I've, I have a much easier answer because it's
3: already embedded in what I've mm. already said. In that, basically, you must do the same thing as you've done with any other Gene Wolfe novel you've ever read, which is to start at the beginning and read each word. And you read each word carefully. And if if the character in the second sentence says, "Death could be awfully, awfully cruel," you know that Gene Wolfe is repeating "awfully" to a point. He's not writing awfully, mm-hmm. awfully twice because he forgot he wrote it once. He is writing awfully, awfully twice because he is already giving us the voice of somebody who is under some kind of, of overall control and we find out what the control is. It may be that, that the protagonist is under the control of his inner self or under the control of of a world which is making him utter in certain ways. As an example, you tell the person to begin Gene Wolfe and just continue reading every word and don't assume that you can make any leaps forward, that, Mm -hmm. that that it's not going to go where you expect previous novels to go because, as Gene said just a few minutes ago, he's not interested in writing the same book again and... Every single book like A Borrowed Man demonstrates this. It's a hard lesson, though. Most people expect what they've seen before. And mm-hmm. that's one of the reasons, I think, why some people
0: misread books like A Borrowed Man. They they think they're reading something else. And for the person who has not read Jane's work before, can they start here?
3: Uh, yes, I think they can. Mm-hmm. I think they can. I th- I think, um, not that it's a simple book, but it is more in clear... And some of his other books, there are. It's it's not it's not at all a deceptive book in the sense that you have to hold much of the book in your memory before you begin to understand what's actually happening. If you read very very carefully, methodically and carefully and lucidly and full of light, I think. <laughs> I said I said at the end of my review that in this case the light feels like rage. It's 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 the the book is a book which you can understand as being whether or not Gene Wolfe was angry writing it, the feeling one derives from all this clarity and light is of a book that should make you angry about the world that it describes, And that is something which you don't have to read previous Gene Wolfe novels to get.
2: The
1: inhumanity of man to man, you know. Mm Yes. Gary? Well, okay, it was... Closer to what I thought I was going to say than, than I thought it was going to be, but uh, one of the things that Neil Gaiman, and, and I've, I've been on panels about Gene uh, with Neil, and he, his advice is always read the first page. Don't assume that this is an overture. Things begin happening with the first sentence, uh, and the first sentences in this novel have to deal with murder, uh, which, which sets a certain kind of tone. Which is, which is retained throughout the novel as other tones are added. So I guess, I guess what I'm saying in a different way from what John was saying is that, uh, you can't let your expectations govern, you can't let your expectations established in chapter one govern what happens to you in chapter two, and you can't let your expectations in chapter two govern your response to chapter three. Because the process, and this is why I think it's actually a very good novel, begin with, Gene, because it's a novel which is continually opening out uh, in in ways that are... It's a fairly brief novel. It's a fairly elegantly structured novel. It it does not end up where you think it's going to end up at all. Um, And you would be disappointed if it did, which goes back to what Gene was saying, is it has to be a story.
2: You... I have read this... I read the first third of the book, and I think, oh... At the end, she's going to marry the doctor, mm-hmm. and so I skip ahead. I skipped ahead to the end, and I read it. And sure as hell, that's what <laughs> happened. You
0: know, uh, I don't want to write that. Yeah. Do, do you ever you find yourself pointless? Sort of, do you ever find yourself going in my story? She's going to marry the doctor, so I'm going to go ahead and make sure she doesn't.
3: <laughs> <laughs> well, well, this one I don't think I'm, I'll. Needs that kind of term. It, it is. It goes. It, you cannot expect a Gene Wolfe novel. That's what I tell people. Yeah. No. You cannot expect it. So you begin at the beginning. and You just just obey it. Obey what it tells you to to understand, and just be very careful. Well, there's a there,
1: there's a way of, there's a kind of dual meaning to 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 the structures in a novel, which actually was explained to me once by by Peter Straub in terms of the title of one of his novels. He told, he wrote a novel titled Mystery. Uh, which misled a lot of readers into thinking it was going to be a murder mystery. But that's not what the word mystery meant. And it's not what the word mystery means in a novel like A Borrowed Man either, even though there are mysteries within it. In other words, uh, that's what I mean about the novel opening up. That it, 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 it's, it satisfies your expectations by forcing your expectations to shift as you go through the novel. So, yeah, you cannot tell at all that she's going to marry the doctor in the end. Um, and... But she does, just in case, you know, anybody. <laughs> <talking to her. laughs> just like to add one, one more cruelty in the book,
3: one more revelation of the way the world is. In passing, oh, that's almost, oh, well, hardly mentions it. Um, the narrator reveals that copies can be made of himself and of his, mm-hmm. of his wife. Just, well, sure. just, just, just as a, a, in an airy tone of voice, underlying which, one can only imagine. Uh, well, call it? a
2: library resource. Yes. Mm-hmm. You know, yes. uh, you could always publish a new edition. Yeah. Yeah. And you can, there are also other, uh, examples of this edition around. Yes. Uh, they didn't just make one and sell it to a library somewhere. They made 135 because they thought that would be the demand.
3: Another thing which mm-hmm. we didn't mention is the profound belatedness of the book because the last time the narrator mm-hmm. made love with his wife was, I think you say, 137 years previous, or 135 mm-hmm. years previously, which gives us a, a marker for how far into the future we're well into the, mm-hmm. way into the 22nd century. If we want to do a science fiction mm-hmm. thing, we can do it. Um, once again, we have a, a description of the profound what you might call existential situation of this book
1: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. which
3: is which is which is very very moving except he never says a thing in which he recognizes that that he is moved deeply or that we should be
0: except we know we are mm-hmm. well maybe on that note we should say thank you very much for making the time to join us it has been a joy and a privilege great. to have you here thank you thank you John for once again making the time it is wonderful to talk to you Wonderful. And you and I will talk again. We will have another Coon Street <laughs> podcast.
1: That's, we end with the words Coon Street podcast because that sounds like a 1945 radio program. Something like that. Until next time, same time, same, time, same station, eat your Kellogg's or whatever. And with that, farewell. Okay. I thought you were great.